This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH. And don't forget, you can listen to the full show. Available each Tuesday, that's after the show, Tuesday to Friday at 6am on your favourite podcast platform. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts and more. You just search Alan Jones and click the picture of me and there I am, voice and all. And the content follows. May I say immodestly, we have a terrific program for you tonight, including the man you love who will shortly be visiting our shores, Nigel Farage. You can hear him tonight, but you can book to see him at nigellive.com.au, nigellive.com.au. I'll have something unflattering to say about the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and Serena Williams. No farewell yet. 41 in 25 days' time. Today, she has beaten the number two player in the world in an exhibition of brutal power, class, determination and guts. Amazing stuff. I'll also talk to Daniel Wild. The IPA have done an interesting poll on whether Australians believe or don't believe that all references to race should be removed from the Constitution. And I've talked to you this week about the Great Reset, changing society, its values, our very democracy. The Voice is the latest example of that. Well, to my New Zealand viewers, stay tuned. It's all happening there under the Ardern government. I'll have something to say and it won't be charitable. And finally, science versus what you haven't heard of, scientism. What's the difference? I'll tell you, stay with me. It's all here on ADH, nothing woke, and we don't run away from the difficult issues. It's ADH that you're watching, and I'm Alan Jones. Look, let me say up front tonight, if this isn't critical to the free world, what is? Joe Biden is supposed to be the leader of the free world. We all know the President of the United States is cognitively deficient. I suspect he wouldn't know today what he said yesterday. While that state of mind might evoke some sympathy, it's another thing to meddle with the truth. Of course, in his cognitive state, he wouldn't be able to write two sentences. But he is the president with a phalanx of writers. They too seem to have no regard for the truth because there are midterm elections in November. Trump's home has been raided by the FBI. Biden yesterday was in Pennsylvania, a swing state for the midterm elections, knowing clearly that the raid on Trump's house has angered Americans and not just Republicans, Biden gives every impression that the Democrats are in trouble. So what tack did Biden take in Pennsylvania? Oh, he said he's on the side of the police. He's accusing Trump and the Republicans of wanting to defund the police. And he talked about, quote, sickening new attacks on the FBI, unquote. Well, let me take both of these issues, the FBI and the police. Biden is clearly nervous about the need to back the FBI because they backed him in the last election. Proven by the fact, as I shared with you on Tuesday night, the FBI were briefing media that the stories that no one would print, but which were true about the Hunter Biden laptop were Russian disinformation. In other words, don't run with the story, protect Joe Biden. This is the FBI who are the domestic intelligence and security service of the United States and the principal federal law enforcement agency, turning a blind eye to the Hunter Biden laptop details, which they had in their possession. Now, listen to Mark Zuckerberg, which I played for you on Tuesday night, the CEO of Facebook, telling us what the FBI told social media. There was a lot of attention on Twitter 
during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The New York Post. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. Hmm. So there you are, the FBI virtually saying, "Hey, ignore this laptop laptop stuff." Well, what was on the laptop? Here is Hunter Biden's former partner, Tony Bobolinsky, explaining about an email from another of Hunter Biden's business partners, the little-known shadowy 57-year-old James Gillier, all on the laptop. This is Bobolinsky speaking, alluding to one email amongst tens of thousands on Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop, which the FBI was tipping off to the media as Russian disinformation. The bloke you're listening to now, as I said, is Tony Bobolinsky. He's referring to an email from this James Gillier, another of Hunter Biden's business partners. The FBI, remember, is the federal law enforcement agency responsible for domestic intelligence and security. The man who's now president is referred to in this email in a deal with China. And according to the email, would be paid for providing appropriate contacts. Here is Tony Bobolinsky. On May 13th, that email was sent from James Gillier to me. I didn't generate that email. James Gillier generated that email. And in that email, James Gillier goes through intimate detail of what each individual's requests were from a compensation perspective and how the equity in the enterprise would be divvied up. Very important, May 13th. That email was generated by somebody else to me. In that email, there's a statement where they go through the equity. Jim Biden's referenced as, you know, 10% doesn't say Biden, it says Jim. And then it has 10% for the big guy held by H. I 1,000% sit here and know that the big guy is referencing Joe Biden. Um, it's, that's crystal clear to me because I lived it. I met with the former vice president in person multiple times. And I had been meeting and talking with Hunter Biden and, and uh, Jim Biden and Rob Walker and James Gillier. So there you are, 10% for a shadowy deal with China. Does that threaten our security? And yet the FBI are meant to guarantee the security of America. No wonder Biden was in Pennsylvania defending the FBI, hoping like hell this Bobolinsky and Zuckerberg stuff doesn't hit the fan. You heard Bobolinsky confirming that James Gillier had written this now infamous email to Hunter Biden, suggesting that his dad, Joe, would own a tenth of the interest in a deal with the Chinese oil father, Joe Biden, would have a tenth of an interest in a deal with a Chinese oil firm, CEFC. The FBI have the laptop. This is the same FBI who turned a blind eye to Hillary Clinton when she used a private email server to conduct official state business with more than 2,000 of the emails classified by the State Department, and she later deleted about 33,000 emails before government officials could investigate them. Was she raided? No. Well, let's look at the other issue, defending the police. No, says Sleepy Joe, who would scarcely remember today where, where he was yesterday. We are on the side of the police. His words yesterday, for God's sake, whose side are you on? The side of the mob? or the side of the police. Well, Joe Biden is the Democrat president of the United States, the top dog in the Democratic Party. Someone has written for him that he's on the side of the police. No, Joe Biden is not about defunding. The Democrats are not about defunding. Is that so? Have a look at this. Said he's saying, take some of the money from policing, about $150 million. I applaud Eric Garcetti for doing what he's done. Not only do we need to disinvest for in police, 
but we need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. So yes, defund your butts, defund you. Yes, I support the reallocation of resources uh, from NYPD. We will be moving funding from the NYPD to youth initiatives and social services. They are talking about reducing the allocation of resources to that department. And I think every single city in this country ought to be thinking about the same thing. Yes, I support the defund movement. I'm for responsible reallocation of resources. And defund the police. I think you do all those other things, you don't need all the money that's going to the police department. So yeah, I mean, the spirit of it, I, I, I do support that. Yeah, and you know, a lot of us were asked if we could imagine a future without police back in 2017 when we were running for office. And I answered yes to that question. We are going to reduce funding in the police department and redirect that money. There's no reason the police budget should just keep growing and growing and growing. They can make sensible cuts to police. We propose to redirect over $7 million from the police bureau. That our city, through our city administrative officer, identify $250 million in cuts. Rashida Tlaib tweeting, no more policing, incarceration, and militarization. It can't be reformed. When they're saying defund the police, what are they saying? They're saying we want fundamental, basic change when it comes to policing. Uh, and they're right. We are reallocating funds. The, the police department here in Minneapolis needs to be dismantled, and we need to start anew. In some necessary cases, completely dismantling those police forces. Police departments uh, are taking a sizable uh, amount of the budget of a lot of municipalities and, and other entities. Uh, we need to look at those budgets, pull some of the money back, and invest it in other things. We are committed to shifting resources. Can you believe that? They're all Democrats. The Vice President, Kamala Harris, New York Mayor, Bill de Blasio, Marcia Fudge is Biden's Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Susan Rice is Biden's Domestic Policy Advisor, the San Francisco Mayor, London Breed, the former New York Mayor, Andrew Cuomo, Beto O'Rourke, the 49-year-old Texas Democrat, former Senator, they're all there defund the police. Biden is captain of a team and he doesn't know what game his teammates are playing. It's a simple game. Cover up the behaviour of the FBI and wink, wink, nod, nod to protesters from Black Lives Matter down. Get the police out of the way. But if the President of the United States was involved before he became President in a shady deal with a shady bloke to enjoy a 10% stake in a dirty China deal, the FBI should have been out of this long ago. That's why Biden was in Pennsylvania raving on about defending the FBI, most probably wondering when American public opinion will demand that he, not Trump, be next investigated. Well, he's back, Nigel Farage. The thing I love about this bloke is he says it as it is. There's no mumble or stumble or equivocation and nothing woke. I regard Nigel Farage as one of the most formidable political figures in the English-speaking world and the architect of Brexit, though many others would claim credit, because for at least 30 years, he argued in the European Union and out of it, that it was time for Britain to separate itself from the Brussels bureaucratic wasteland. For years, he didn't have too many friends. But as I told you when we spoke last time, as leader of the UK Independence Party, the title alone tells you what he was about. In the 2009 European elections, his party, UKIP, won the second highest share of the UK popular vote. And in the 2014 European elections, UKIP won 24 seats, the first time a party other than Labor or the Conservatives had won the largest number of seats in a national election since the 1910 general election. Prime Minister David Cameron got the message that a referendum on EU membership was needed to determine where the British people stood and the rest you know. Nigel Farage is not only across all issues, He's charismatic and highly intelligent. And I'll tell you in a moment where you can see and hear him. But consider this. The Brexit referendum was successful in 2016. But frustrated with the delayed implementation of Brexit, Nigel Farage formed the Brexit Party. And with the UK still part of the European Union, the Brexit Party won the most votes in the May 29 European election and became the single largest party in the European Parliament. This man is a dominant international political figure. 
And to my Melbourne viewers, you can see him on September 26th in Sydney. There is on your screen, September 27th. Brisbane, September 29th, appropriately called an entertaining evening with Nigel Farage. It's always entertaining. And you book at nigellive.com.au, nigellive.com.au. Nigel Farage joins me again. Great to talk to you, but it's only a couple of days ago, Nigel, that you warned the Conservative parties in Australia not to become Labor light. Can you reinforce that warning for us? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've seen it in my country. I saw it before Trump came along in America. You see, what happens is that political figures, elected political figures in capital cities are surrounded by mainstream media, are surrounded by globalist lobbyists, are invited to the most wonderful drinks parties and dinners and lunches. And I'm, by the way, I'm not against any of those things. I enjoy them all. But through a sort of process of osmosis, they become less conservative because of the people they're surrounded by. And they forget, they forget the people they're actually representing. You get outside our capital cities in any English-speaking country in the world, and you'll find, despite all the madness that is going on and that people like you and I comment on and warn about, you actually find there is a majority for common sense. Yeah. And so if you go back to people who are naturally conservative-minded, not very political, because most people are too busy. They've got a house, a mortgage, a dog, and 2.3 kids. They're busy getting on with their lives, but they need to hear messages that actually appeal to them. And if conservative parties start to become labor light, well, people then think, well, what's the point of what's this? The point we might of as well just vote for absolutely. real thing. At least we know what we're going to get. Yeah, uh, you, you were asked about our former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and you said, I'm not sure what he really is, but he's certainly not conservative. Hear, hear. <laughs> hey? Well, I mean, he seemed to. I mean, one of Australia's slight problems, if I may dare say this, is that you've gone for big state, big government control, uh, you know, even bigger than we've done in the United Kingdom. And, and this was typified, I think, by the whole response to lockdown yes. and by, what can I call it, vaccine mania. I mean, yes. I think, you know, I mean, do you, do you have any idea what the rest of the world thought when Novak Djokovic finished up being put under house arrest. I mean, the whole thing Absolutely. was quite extraordinary. Uh, and I must admit, if I'd been an Australian, I just, I don't think I could have brought myself to vote for Morrison. Emba like, no, people like him let side down. Are there any true Conservative leaders around the world apart from Donald Trump? Well, Trump obviously is absolutely outstandingly so. And whether you like his, his New York brash out their personality or not when it comes to the big policy issues. My goodness me, you know, the guy believes in entrepreneurship. He believes in individual liberty. He believies in free speech. You know, he believes in all, oh, by the way, he believes in peace, not endlessly going to war. What a refreshing change that is for an American president. Um, but around the rest of the English speaking world, at this moment in time, we are struggling to find leaders with courage and integrity. And it's courage that you need because the tactic the left use, the tactic the big, you know, uber centre-left media use, is they try and bully you. Mm. They try and bully you. They try and say, how dare you say that? Will you apologise? Mm. And then they go, oh, well, I'm really sorry that I said that. <laughs> it's pathetic. Rather than, rather than doubling down and saying, no, this is what I believe in. Isn't I mean, you know, take what is going on take in New Zealand and Australia. You know, the idea that voters are now going to be separated up uh, according to their ethnicity. I mean, all of this is the stuff of division and catastrophe Correct. within society. Correct. You need robust leaders prepared, prepared to stand up. And you know what? If people throw insults and, you know, call you racist or call you whatever it is, this stuff means nothing and it doesn't resonate with ordinary folk Correct. out there Correct. living their lives. Correct. Now, don't forget, if you're enjoying this bloke, I can listen, we can listen all night, really, 
We can talk to him about a thousand issues. But Nigel Farage, you can book now. Nigel Live, there it is on your screen. NigelLive.com.au. Melbourne, September 26. Sydney, I'm not winding him up, Nigel, by the way. Sydney, September 27. And Brisbane, September 29. Let me just ask you about this Meghan Markle. You've said Meghan Markle is wrecking the royal family because in an interview with the US outlet The Cut, she said about Prince Harry's decision to step back from the royal family, quote, Harry said to me, I lost my dad in the process. Now she's saying she was talking about her estranged relationship with her own father. Nigel, how you could construe those words, Harry said to me, I lost my dad in the process, to mean Harry was talking about her father, stretches credibility, doesn't it? Every single claim this woman has made turns out to be untrue, turns out to be unfounded, turns out to be fantasist in the extreme. I mean, hold on to your hats for this one. <laughs> she said in an interview this week with the New York magazine that her marrying into the royal family was seen by many in South Africa as the equivalent of the release of Mel Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, you know, what, what planet is she on? It, you, know, you can't, in the royal family, you can't have your cake and eat it. Members of the royal family are born to duty. And what Markle has tried to do, and sadly twisted the mind of Harry, who was at one time, the most popular royal in history. I mean, everyone loved him of all generations. He was the cheeky chappy. He was the Afghanistan veteran. He was the Jack the Lad about town. And basically what she's done is to use her title as the Duchess of Suffolk. She's tried to commercialise it. And the Queen, quite rightly, has told them to go, told them they can't do it. In fact, we call it Megxit. That's what it is. Mm. And they've got off to, they've got off to America. Uh, look, it, but sadly, it's doing huge damage to the royal family. It is appalling that the Queen, in the last years mm. of her reign, should have to put up with this nonsense. Yeah, no, I'm I... pleased to say, I'm pleased to say that British public opinion uh, now doesn't even want them to come back to the no, country, right. doesn't no. even want them to no. visit. And America, America, I tell you what, the scales are falling there too. Yeah, this is a dreadful... It, it, it's real Wallace Simpson stuff, isn't it? Listen, on a more serious note, you have said that you have received violent death threats as a political commentator, which now occupies, Nigel, I might say, very successfully on GB News. Is this because you supported Brexit? Well, I think Brexit has become a real dividing line in British society. You know, you are, you're either a Brexiteer and you sort of hold it to your heart as part of your identity, um, or you are uh, Remainer, Ramona, uh, Rejoiner. Ramona. <laughs> um, mercifully, mercifully, in total numbers, they're a relatively small bunch of people, but they're still an influential bunch of people, and they spread messages that lead to hate being directed against those of us that have stood up firmly for it. Uh, you know, it's all presented by these people, as if, you know, Brexit is us going back to the 1950s. Brexit will lead to poverty. Uh, the reason we've got a fuel crisis is all because of Brexit. Uh, and so, yes, a fair bit of hate does still get directed at me. But you know what, Alan? I couldn't care less. That's right. Look, you blamed liberal globalist types. So I've been talking about this and the Great Reset and outfits like the World Economic Forum seeking global government, undermining sovereignty, but also seeking to prosecute left-wing agendas in our classrooms and in our universities. How dangerous are these globalist types? Because there's a lot of propaganda and indoctrination going on amongst young people. Yes, of course. I mean, the push for global government is something that uh, men have sought for century after century after century. Uh, and you understand when you look at the long span of time that the only way you maintain democracy, liberty and freedom is you have to fight for it constantly. You can never, ever rest on your laurels. There are always those with big money and big power ambitions that want to take it away. And why Brexit matters so much is Brexit was the first brick out of the wall of this concept of global governance. They saw the European Union in Brussels, really, they saw that as the pilot project for what they'd like to do on a larger scale. So is this what they want to do? Yes, absolutely, no question, no doubt about it. Uh, but I, you know, 
when it's explained to people mm. what this is really all about, they say, the hell no, we don't want it. And that brings me back to the start of this conversation. That is why you need conservative leaders who are unafraid of the big money, Correct. of the big banks, Correct. of the big media, and stand up and tell it straight to the people and Absolutely. to do it in language that everybody mm. understands and be prepared to take the brickbats. Well, that's why return. this bloke, that's why Nigel Farage has been so popular. Listen, just object, uh, I was quite amused. You were actually abused on a plane, not that that's amusing, but did you really say to this bloke, young bloke that abused you, look, son, You've had your say, sit down, shut up, or I'll make sure the transport police delay your journey home. That's a good line. Yes, and, and you know what? It works spectacularly well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then you were leaving the GB studios not long before that, and the young couple were saying they wanted to kill you. Yes, yes, that, that, was, that was lovely, wasn't it? Yes, yes, they, they started off by accusing me of spreading hate. Have you been spreading hate? And I tried to be civil with them, and those that accused me of hate then said they, hope, they hoped I died of very bad diseases, but preferably they'd like to smash my head and then kill me. And, 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 and this is where we've got to. We have got to a situation where we're not teaching critical thinking in our schools and universities, and critical thinking is key. That is where you explain to people, here are two possible solutions to a problem. They are both equally valid, and you, as a maturing adult, must make your mind up which of those you believe in. That is for centuries how we taught people. Now, increasingly, youngsters are being taught, here's a problem, here are two solutions. One of them is virtuous and good, and if you support the other, you're probably a neo-Nazi. And that is what is going on, the poisoning of the minds of our young people, Definitely. our universities, that frankly become madrasas of Marxism. Absolutely. Just on young people, do your children suffer because they have the surname Farage? Yeah, it's a very unusual surname. There's no more than a couple of dozen of, of us in the whole of the United Kingdom. So it's, it's not been easy, uh, always for my kids growing up, but um, mercifully, uh, three of them are now in adulthood. Um, but you know, you know what kids are like in the playground, at school. Uh, and I guess it wouldn't matter, you know, if I was a footballer or something, but just because of what mainstream media did to me for year after year after year. I mean, you know, normally in politics, you'd have half the newspapers for you and half the newspapers against you. And for many, many years, I had every single newspaper and every single broadcaster mm -hmm. against me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a very easy place to be. They should have hired me in England. I would never be against you. Look, we've got a summit on in Canberra here. It's supposed to be about jobs and so on. Um, it's most probably yeah. more notable for those who haven't been invited. But we have a massive jobs shortage here. And they're going to talk today about raising the immigration levels to 200,000. Now, you've said that in Britain, anger over the pace and rate of demographic change in your towns and cities is growing. And the argument that the Conservative government in Britain has been too slow in helping others from different parts of the world. Now, that doesn't hold up. But what, what, what are your comments? What's your, your, your argument in favour or against this migration yeah. issue? OK, two things going on here. Number one, the labour shortage is in every country in the Western world. It isn't just Australia. We've got it. America's got it. It's everywhere. Why? Well, in our case, we've got 5.3 million people who are not working, of working age who are not working. Mm -hmm. They either get signed off sick with the doctor or they retire incredibly early or they frankly just can't be bothered. They're happy to take the unemployment benefit, uh, laze around and not do too much. So there's a huge problem. There is a segment of our young people who appear to be without drive, without ambition of any kind at all. And frankly, a benefit system, I speak for the UK now, but a benefit system that actually discourages people from going out to get pay that is not that great. You know, why would you go to work just to earn a few thousand pounds a year more than you can get for doing nothing? So that's part of the problem. Uh, but if you think mass immigration is the solution to your problems. Look at Britain. Our population has risen by 8 million since 2002. Mr Blair was the sponsor of it. The Conservatives have continued with it. What's it done? It's made 
Access to our kids getting houses very difficult. Access to doctor's services difficult. Getting your kids into local schools very, very difficult. Congestion on our motorways at a level you can't even... It's changed the whole nature of our life. But the worst thing, and this is the one point please folks take on board, is this. In settled communities, people live in streets. Families know each other for generations. You know the Christian names of your next door neighbours. You have a shared interest in that community in dealing with petty crime or problems. There is a bond that exists between you. It's called community. It's like an extension of your own family. When, through mass uncontrolled immigration, you finish up with neighbours who don't even speak the same language mm. as you, who don't have the, sh the same yeah. shared cultural interests, mm. then what happens is people naturally become more insular and they worry about their own family, as, as they rightly should, but they stop caring about the rest of the community. And it's in an environment like that, with that vast demographic change, where suddenly you start to see litter, lawlessness, and a breakdown in community. And we are seeing that happening in Britain's cities because of this massive pace of immigration. Australia has been built on immigration, you know, over the course of the last couple of hundred years and, 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 and has become a successful first world country with its own culture, its own identity, and to many people, somewhere that we've all been very envious of as we've grown up. It is important to understand what you've created, what its value is, Immigration, yes, but uncontrolled immigration on a huge Absolutely. level with people from very different cultures will break down your towns and cities. It will be a disaster. Absolutely. Just look at some of our cities. Absolutely. Nigel, we could talk forever. I mean, you do outstanding work contributing to public awareness and proper discourse, and we look forward to welcoming you here. Now, viewers, Melbourne, September 26, put it in your diary. Come on, get out there. There's much more he's got to talk about that I can cover with him here. Sydney, September, and be lots of jokes too. Sydney, September 27, Brisbane, September 29, and you book at nigellive.com.au and you'll get the unvarnished story. Nothing woke about Nigel Farage. He's entertaining, informative, but also, as you've heard tonight, educative. You'll love him, nigellive.com.au. Nigel, see you soon, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Adam. There he is, Nigel Farage. Look, I don't know what they're talking about in Canberra today, but you can bet your bottom dollar on one thing. It'll make no difference whatsoever to the pressures that people are facing on a range of fronts, which I might add, during the election campaign, the Albanese team gave every suggestion that if we voted for them, milk and honey would flow. However, there's one thing I'm telling you the world is talking about today, and I mean the world. Two words. Serena Williams. She'll be 41 in 25 days' time. 41. She's played three matches in the last year and a half. Today, in the second round of the US Open, she's taken on the number two player in the world, the Estonian Annette Kontaveit. Serena was the rank outsider, and she delivered a brilliant performance of power and guts. She won the first set in a tie-break. She lost the second. And then she said, well, I thought I'd better pull something out and give it my best. Her serving and ground strokes were brutal, and the Serena Williams legend was enhanced. It was a vintage performance. To win in the first round two days ago, she repeated it today. This may be her swan song, but the singing is not over. She partners her sister Venus, who's 42, in the women's doubles. They've won 14 Grand Slam doubles trophies together and three Olympic gold medals. Serena has won 23 Grand Slam singles championships, Australia, France, Wimbledon and the US. Venus has won seven, five at Wimbledon, two at the US Open. So just imagine, one family, two girls, 30 Grand Slam singles championships. The father, Richard Williams, started it all in downtown Compton, Los Angeles. He must be one of the greatest coaches ever. He was the architect of the way they play, brutal power and hit for the lines. Well, now Serena plays the Australian girl, Alia Tomlanovic, and who knows what might happen. Look, I've got to confess, I have backed Serena Williams at 50 to 1 to win the title. You see, 20 years ago, Pete Sampras was about to retire and he won the tournament. What can Serena do? She's a special talent and you can never under underestimate people with special talent. Look, on that note, I must say 
The passing of Paul Green has saddened and disturbed everybody. He has been called a rugby league coach. But what people don't understand this about this 49-year-old who sadly took his life on August 11 is that he was much more than that. Yes, he forged a reputation on the field as one of the toughest competitors in the game. By rugby league standard, he was tiny, 167 centimetres, five feet six on the old scale. But he played 162 first grade rugby league games, seven times for Queensland, twice for Australia. He coached Winner Manly in Queensland in the Queensland Cup. They're the Broncos' feeder side. He won back-to-back premierships with them. He then joined Trent Robinson at the Roosters in 2013. They won the premiership. North Queensland Cowboys came calling and Paul Green was named the head coach for 2014. He got them to semi-finals in his first season and then made history in the following season by delivering the Cowboys their first and only premiership, beating Brisbane in one of the greatest grand finals of all time. But Paul Green was more than that. And perhaps his funeral this week bore witness to that. Some arrived in BMWs, others in trucks. One had a mini ladder on the top. They came from everywhere. But what's not known about Paul Green and about which he never spoke? He was a young man of remarkable scholarship. I knew him and I didn't know any of this. His tertiary entrance score was the maximum, 99. He could have been anything. He was accepted into the Harvard Business School and completed a Certificate of Management Excellence. He had a graduate certificate in applied science and sports coaching from Queensland University. He gained a commercial pilot's license and then a helicopter license. On top of that, and none of us knew this, he was a superb musician, a capable violinist, and he loved singing, which would be the reason his good friend, Mark Beats, said of Paul Green that he was the smartest man I ever met in so many ways. So not just a footballing genius as a player and a coach, but also a father and a friend and a person gifted on many fronts. It is indeed an enormous tragedy, the things we'll never know. Remember, there is always someone prepared to talk to you on Lifeline 13 11 14. Well, as you know, I've been using these words a lot this week, the Great Reset. The national anthem says we are one. But we now have a proposal for The Voice, a race-based body to occupy a special place in Australia's system of government. Let's go to Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. I'm going to embarrass him, but I will say this. I'm sure you share my view that this young man is articulate and informed, which gives us all hope that one day soon Australia will be run by people with an ability and a commitment to authentic Australian values, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. Daniel Wilde's Institute of Public Affairs has been polling on the issue of race in the Constitution. Daniel joins me. Daniel, thank you for your scholarship and your ability to articulate very simply what the issues are. Now, you have polled Australians in December 2019 about whether all references to race should be removed from the Constitution. Share that result with us. Well, lovely to be with you, Alan. And uh, as you say, we, we polled Australians on do they believe that references to race should be removed from the Constitution. And the poll that we undertook in 2019 identified that 45% of Australians believe that references to race should be removed from the Constitution. Now, we've redone that poll uh, around a month ago uh, and asking Australians should re- uh, references to race be removed from the Constitution. And that result has significantly increased to almost 60% of Australians believing that references to race should be removed. And this is a very important and encouraging result because it shows that that you spoke about authentic values. Perhaps the most authentic Australian value is egalitarianism, that we are all equal as Australians, regardless of our race, regardless of our ancestral background, regardless of our ethnicity, that we should all have equal political, civil and cultural and economic rights. And the best way to achieve that is not by adding more references to race in the Constitution, which is what the voice would Parliament, the voice to Parliament would do, but by removing references to race in our Constitution to make us a truly colourblind nation. Absolutely. The problem is, though, Daniel, as I've been saying, I mean, I could fashion a dozen questions that no one proposing the voice could answer. For example, what will the voice actually do? Who will be able to stand as a candidate? Who will be able to vote? 
I mean, will there be any election? None of these have got the answers. Will it be advisory? Will it have legislative powers? If so, what will they be? None of these things we know. Will they pay their own way? Or will they be on a parliamentary salary? Will the voice be subject to the courts and ordinary laws? I mean, how could anyone vote yes when none of those questions are answered? And I don't expect they will be answered. Well, I think you're right, Alan. None of those questions will be answered because they know that the more Australians learn about the voice, the less they like it. But I think it comes down to the simple principle. Do you want Australia to be divided by race or not? Because that's what the voice the parliament will do. It will divide us permanently uh, by race. And it would be a repudiation of the 1967 referendum. As you know, Alan, in that referendum, over 90% of Australians voted to remove references to race in the constitution. In that instance, to make sure all Australians were counted equally. Uh, but as I say, it's being inverted now, and this is what identity politics does. This will be the insertion of identity politics into our really? nation's birth certificate uh, by saying that one group of Australians has extra or special um, political rights uh, through the voice to parliament. And let's be clear about this. It will have effective veto power over every single major piece of legislation. It will be a third chamber of parliament. And the reason for that, exactly as Anthony Albanese admitted, in a recent interview on ABC Insiders with David Spears, that it would be, quote, a very brave government which went against the advice of The Voice. So this will have effective veto power over every single major piece of legislation put before the parliament. Yes, you're saying that establishing an Indigenous voice in parliament in our constitution would permanently divide Australians by race. And the referendum, you say, on behalf of the Institute of Public Affairs, I was interested in the use of words that you chose here, that the referendum should be shelved. Are you saying that the Albanese government should not go ahead with this? Absolutely 100%, because even just asking the question will divide Australians. Correct. I mean, think about what the government is asking us to do. They are asking Australians whether or not they want to permanently divide the nation based on race. So if the answer is no, if, an over, if a majority of Australians say no, which I believe they do, and I believe they will, then the political class will say that is evidence of us being racist. But if they say yes, then that will have the effect of dividing us by race anyway. So there is no good outcome here. Whether it's a no vote, as I say, that'll be used as a cudgel by the political class. And if it's a yes vote, we'll be permanently divided by race. So this is why it's important that it not even go to a referendum, why it must be shelved. And I think, to be honest, why the coalition must come out quite strong against this now, because they have the ability to stop it even getting to a referendum, which is absolutely critical. Brilliant. Brilliant articulation and enunciation of the issues. Brilliant. What about this former basketball star and millionaire from America spruiking the voice to Parliament? What do you make of that? Well, I think it shows it's a, a bit of a PR stunt, Alan, and I don't think it did any benefits to uh, the Yes camp. But I think it suggests they're probably a little bit desperate. Yep, um, it's yep. been, I think, taken over by sort of extreme elements of the left in terms of who's advocating the voice. But I don't think it reflected very well on, on Anthony Albanese. Now, if Shaquille O'Neal wants to have his opinion, he's more than welcome to have his opinion, just like anybody is. But it shows that it became a bit of a joke and uh, certainly did not endear Australians to the case that the Yes Camp is making. So why do you think, in the light of what you've said and brilliantly exposed the problems in relation to all of this, why do you think members of major political parties, the media, every known and unknown celebrity, every multimillionaire says, we must have the voice, when there's no detail, we don't even know what they're talking about? I think the reason, Alan, is because it is a safe thing for them to do because they mm. will receive accolades for yeah. coming out yeah. in favour of the yes vote. Uh, the other point is that there is also benefits to businesses in terms of the various interactions they sometimes have to undertake with Indigenous groups, particularly as it relates to native title uh, and, and the but land just to interrupt you there, so I've especially spoken, if you're a big I've spoken to Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal Australians, and they don't agree with this. <laughs> they, they said, hang on, well, well, I don't know where this has come from. We weren't consulted. No one has ever spoken to us about this until I read it in the paper. Well, you make a, an important point because what the voice assumes is that there is only one voice for Aboriginal and Torres yes. Strait Islanders. But of course, just in the same way that there is no single voice for non-Indigenous Australians, there is no single voice for Indigenous Correct. Australians because Correct. they are 
individuals. They all have their own opinions, their own perspectives, and that is why we have a representative democracy to ensure that everybody has one person, one vote, everybody has the opportunity to voice their individual concerns. But I agree with you. I think it's it's concerning to assume and erroneous to assume that there is one single voice that can speak on behalf of every single Indigenous Australian. It's just wrong. I mean, Malcolm Turbull, as Prime Minister, said the Indigenous voice to Parliament was, quote, contrary, you just argued this, to the principles of equality and citizenship. Now, we'd both agree with that. And as Prime Minister in October 2017, he said his government, quote, does not believe such an addition to our national representative institutions is either desirable or capable of winning acceptance at a referendum. Now, you'll note there that Malcolm Turnbull didn't say this is what Malcolm Turnbull thinks. He said his government. Now, the bulk of those people are now part of the opposition. What's happened? Well, it's a good question. I think that they, some in the opposition are... Uh, worried uh, and fretting about the prospect of being yeah. called racist by yeah. the media. Uh-huh. I think that concerns them and, uh-huh. and they're not willing to make yeah. the case. I think there's also a component where they believe that it might fall over on its own, mm. uh, owing to all those issues that you identified, Alan, about the lack of detail. But mm. this is too risky to simply assume that it's going to fall over on That's its it. own. I don't think it will fall over yeah, you, because re- there are so many people and so many institutions that are invested in getting this to a referendum mm. uh, that we need to have principled views in favour of racial equality. All Australians are equal and race has no place Absolutely. in our constitution. Absolutely. Brilliantly argued. We'll leave it there, Daniel. Look forward to talking to you next week. It's always refreshing to hear your views, but to the opposition, get out in the public place and argue the case that this is damaging to the fabric of Australian democracy. Argue it and have the guts to do it. Daniel Wilde, great to talk. We'll talk again next week. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. There he is. Very clever man, isn't he? Daniel Wilde. Look, I spoke again this week, and I must confess, not for the last time on this great reset. That is, before our very eyes, our society, our values and our democracy are being stood on their heads. I am totally supportive of Indigenous Australians, and I have to confess, I've put my hand in my pocket many times to prove it. But at the same time, as the national anthem says, we are one, should the Indigenous flag be flown on the Harbour Bridge and enjoy equivalence with the Australian flag? I mentioned this week, welcome to country. That can only mean one thing. This is not our land. And part of the Australian family is allowing us to be here. Welcome. And then we generate wealth and a lifestyle from which all Australians benefit, including Indigenous Australians. As the historian Keith Winshuttle rightly says, two decades ago, this ritual was unknown. It was introduced without public debate, let alone public support, but society is being reset. Now, it's not only welcome to country, but taxpayers each year provide $30,000 million to Indigenous Australians. No one knows where it goes to close the gap. No wonder the gap stays open. You get $30,000 million if it isn't shut. And now we have the voice and a referendum, a race-based body to occupy a special place in Australia's system of government. Let me say at this point, good evening to our viewers in New Zealand. We're an article written by former Labor Minister Richard Preble has gathered my attention. He claims that a coup is underway in New Zealand by the Maori tribal elite. Now, I talk about the Great Reset, and I've told you it's worldwide, the product of this World Economic Forum. Well, the Preble newspaper column focused on the Ardern government's plan to confiscate the water assets of the nation's 67 councils and hand their governance to an equal number of unelected tribal members and council representatives. Asset confiscation in a program known as Three Waters, the drinking water, the stormwater and the wastewater. Richard Preble was an influential member of the Labor government in New Zealand and by David Longy in the mid-80s. Preble made the point which applies here, that New Zealand is a liberal democracy in which, quote, individual rights and freedoms are officially recognised and protected by the rule of law, unquote. Governments, he said, are, quote, accountable to the people by a system of one person, one vote. He concluded, and think how this applies to the voice, and I quote Preble, liberal democracy is incompatible with co-government by tribes. He wrote, it is ratepayers 
Maori and non-Maori who paid for the pipes, the dams, the stormwater drains and the sewerage plants. The government's three waters legislation is a coup. It is replacing liberal democracy with co-government, unquote. Now, Richard Preble's not the only one. The Kaipara mayor, by the way, the Kaipara Harbour, in case you didn't know, is the second biggest natural harbour in the world. It's almost 20 times bigger than Sydney Harbour. Anyway, their mayor described this Ardern Three Waters plan as, quote, a Trojan horse for ending democratic rights. Is that, do you think, a great reset in New Zealand? Ardern mentioned none of this in her 2020 campaign manifesto. And by failing to gain the consent of voters, Ardern has no mandate for a co-governance agenda. Sensible New Zealanders say it is completely illegitimate. What it further means is, apart from tribal rule, Ardern is embedding, which we've talked about here, racial preference throughout the legislative framework, from the public service to schools to the entire science and research sector. As Richard Preble says, this is co-government with iwi, which is the largest social unit in New Zealand's Maori society. In Maori, iwi roughly means people or a nation or a confederation of tribes. Preble and others are arguing that Ardern will enable iwi to control health services throughout New Zealand. Control them. Abolish the country's 20 district health boards, along with giving iwi control of water, confiscate water infrastructure and services from all 67 councils. The legislation is the Water Services Entities Bill. It passed its first reading in June with more than 88,000 public submissions lodged, most in opposition. But the Ardern government has a tin ear. So there you are, my New Zealand friends. And be warned in Australia, the Great Reset stuff is not alarmist talk. This in New Zealand is a government cultural takeover reshaping democracy. Professor Elizabeth Rata is the Director of Knowledge in Education at Auckland University. She outlined the threat posed by the tribal coup in a recent address titled In Defence of Democracy, where Professor Rata said, and I quote, I want to talk about democracy, about what it is we are in danger of losing and what we need to do to retain our nation's remarkable 170-year legacy of democratic governance. The question we must ask, she says, is this, how has a small group of individuals, both Maori and non-Maori, managed to install a racialized ideology into our democracy? She said, it's a coup d'etat in all but name, accomplished not by force, but by ideology, enabled by a compliant media, unquote. Well, as it is for New Zealand, so it is planned for Australia. Changing society, its values and democracy itself. In New Zealand, it's being called a tribal coup. What do we call it in Australia? Well, that's it from me tonight. A full program, Fred Paul coming up. I'll be with you on Monday night. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.